Hello, welcome to Live Culture. I'm your host, Martha Willett Lewis. Live Culture is a monthly program about arts and ideas, and my first guest today will be artist Richard Pascarelli. So stay tuned for that. I'm delighted to have with my guest today, Mr. Pascarelli, who is a visual artist, a painter, and Richard is a, has an exhibit up right now at the Jennifer Turtzian Gallery in Litchfield, Connecticut, called The Matter at Hand. Welcome, Richard, to Live Culture. Hi, Martha. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to talk to you about this exhibit. Um, there was a photograph of you in an article recently in White Hot Magazine with you sitting in a kind of Zen Buddha pose in the middle of a flea market with a huge number of objects behind you. Yes. And it seems like <laughs> such a great appropriate image. Well, thanks. I wanted you to tell us a little bit about what your work is about, what the matter at hand would be and, and how you got there. Sure. Uh, well, first I'd like to say that the image was taken by James Solomon. Mm -hmm. And it was in a flea market that's located in Bethlehem, Connecticut. Um, it's a large warehouse that's chuck full of a million things. So it, it, it's a it's a great space, actually. Like if you're looking for a uh, an old adapter or something like that for an old printer and you've lost it, uh, they will probably have it. It's like that kind of place. Anyway, um, the people there are lovely and um, I appreciate them uh, letting us take the, the photograph there. Uh, so my work, so the, the show, The Matter at Hand, is a juxtaposition of two bodies of work. So in a nutshell, I would say that um, I am organizationally obsessive compulsive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, <clears throat> I'm constantly fixing things, adjusting things, making things level, straight, square, whatever you want to say. And... Um, you know, it got to a point where um, my family, I have two uh, adult children, but when they were younger, it got to this point where my family, my wife and the kids were basically said to me, you know what, we cannot live this way anymore. This is too crazy. And, you know, I could have gotten upset, but I didn't. I thought to myself, you know what, you, you're right. Why do I do this? You know? Right. And so I started doing research into, um, uh, the psychology of it. And that led me into um, studying uh, not only OCD and hoarding disorder, but it also got me into philosophy, phenomenology, and also uh, Eastern philosophy and Buddhism and things like that. And the ideas of attachments and the way we define ourselves by the things that we keep around us. And mm -hmm. so, um, so I make works that are the ones that are sort of true to me are really sort of more the organizationally obsessive compulsive pieces that really talk about perfection and uh, precision and order. Right. But, you know, and I visited friends who were like that as well, but then I really wanted to expand my research. So I started going out into the world and talking to other people and asking them if they knew people. And, and that led me then into the into the homes of people who are affected by um, hoarding disorder. And as a person and, who's compulsively yeah. neat, do you have an extra amount of trouble going into the home of somebody who's a hoarder? 
Yeah. Um, well, actually, I was nervous the first time I went mm-hmm. and it was uh, a, a man named Edward and I, I found him through a friend of a friend kind of thing. And um, <clears throat> it was a hot summer day. It must have been, you know, 90 degrees. And I was going into his tiny apartment in uh, the East Village and I went in and it was phenomenal. Um uh, w- more than I expected it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, there were, they call them goat paths uh-huh. where you have piles of things on either side and then there's sort of a small narrow path that you navigate to get through the apartment. Turns out that this was a uh, two-bedroom apartment in New York City and it had, you know, formal bed, two bedrooms, a bathroom, a kitchen, a living room, everything separate from one another. And, um, you know, Thank God I was wearing shorts, but I, cause it was so hot. Sure. <laughs> anyway, but, but the guy, so one of the things that was interesting, um, I went to um, a professional conference mm-hmm. on the subject because I wanted to learn more about this subject. So I went to this conference in Philadelphia and it was more of a professional conference. So there were academics and uh, you know, people who help people clean out their homes, organizers and people like that, as well as, you know, therapists and stuff. Mm -hmm. So each throughout the day, there were different speakers and seminars. So I signed up for a bunch of different ones. And at one of them, I learned that over 90% of the people who are affected by hoarding disorder had suffered a traumatic event as a child. That's not surprising. I, you know, I feel like world wars and shortages and the feeling of deprivation or losing or possibly losing your history um, yes. play deeply into this. Um, yes. I've, I've been fascinated by this for a long time because it also seems like there's a continuum between, for artists in particular, between collecting oh, yeah. and, and hoarding, right? Like I'm looking already at my own as a, as an orphan now, both I've inherited from both of my parents and now I have more than enough stuff and I kind of don't even know what to do with it. Um, and then, yeah, and, I then know. and let me ask you, <clears throat> when you look at that stuff, does it, does it, when you look at that stuff, do you automatically kind of get transported back in time or, or like, a, like almost like a Proustian type of thing, you know, where you, one memory leads to the next? Some of it, yeah. Yes. Some of it. Yes. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a problem to touch the stuff because then I, I kind of want to look through it rather than get rid of it. Or I just want to put it in away in a box and not look at it at all. Don't want to deal with it at all. Um, but the other thing that I think is really interesting about your story is I'd never really put together the idea of being um, neat and compulsive and, and the idea of composition and orderliness. And that actually makes perfect oh, yeah. sense sort of fetishizing the construction of images sure. and how they might go sure. together. And um, and <clears throat> the ones that I saw from this show featured, I believe they're watercolors, which I tend to think of as a very hard to control material. And they're pictures of, I think your headphones <laughs> and coffee, right? right? Yeah. So could you just. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was in. Sure. I'll tell you about that piece. Um, so um 
when I was, uh, I, I did a, an artist residency at Mass Mocha in Massachusetts. And one day I arrived in the studio there and I put down my, because the apartment was separate from the studio. So every day I would carry my things over to the studio. So I put down on the desk, my headphones, my phone, my sketchbook, my coffee mug, all of that. And I looked down at it and maybe it was because it was a very dark desk and all the objects sort of stood out. But I looked at it and I, I thought, oh, that's such a pleasing composition. And so then I, I took a picture of it. And then the next day I came in and I put them down in a different configuration. I thought, oh, that's, that's pleasing too. So I thought, how many configurations can I do? And so when I got back to my studio in New York, right. I thought, you know what, I'm I saw those photographs I had taken. It had been almost a year. And I thought, you know what, I want to do a piece based on that. And so I, I, set up a scenario in my studio where I, I set up a, the paper is um, 12 inches by 18 inches. So I sort of set up a rectangle and then I arranged the objects, photographed them, arranged them again, photographed them again. I did that maybe, you know, 40 times. And then afterwards I printed them out and I looked at the, the 40 photographs and I thought, all right, I'd like to make like a multiple, make this piece feel sort of like a multiple. And, um, just because I'm very interested in minimalism and the way the minimalists thought about things like when you think about a Donald Judd sculpture and how in one rectangle, the, the, the plane is on the left and then in the next one, it's on the right. And then the next one, it's in the middle. And I was thinking about that. And um, so uh, I picked 15 pieces that I thought were different, slightly different from one another. And, <clears throat> and then I started making the watercolors based on those, those photographs. But there were a couple of interesting things that came out of it. So after I made the pieces and I put, taped them up on my wall to look at them, I looked at it and I guess maybe because of the black of the sketchbook and the black of the cell phone, sometimes it was straight, sometimes it was sideways. It started looking like computational, almost like a code. And I thought, well, that's so interesting in the sense that we think about the way we think about patterns and, and things just and um, repetition and, and things like that and how that sort of relates to math. And another interesting thing that I realized, which was sort of ex post facto, was I looked at the, the things. And so, you know, when you think about phenomenology and this idea of um, how we come to perceive reality the way that we do, it's through our senses predominantly, you know. And so I looked at the objects and I thought, oh, my gosh, I have one object for each sense. So I had the headphones for hearing and the mug was taste and smell and the screen in my phone was touch. Yeah. And heat. That's cool. And um, the pencil was sort of touch. And then the sketchbook sort of represented mind. And so I thought that was sort of a humorous little side note um, that kind of really came out of the work unintentionally. But, you know, sometimes that happens. So did you find that there was a limit to the number of what, or perhaps I should put it a different way. What makes a pleasing composition to somebody who's interested in organizing the way that you were interested in organizing? You know, that's interesting um, because when I started working on this, on, on this series, um, I arrived home. Well, I was, I was trying to think about it um, and understand it. And, you know, after having visited the homes of people, uh, dealing with hoarding, uh, mm -hmm. which is generally, you know, in hoarding, there's diff five different types. I think it's five different types <clears throat> of hoarding. So you have informational hoarding. Those are people who collect magazines and newspapers and books and things that believe that the information is very valuable. And then right. there's, there's um, sentimental hoarding, 
there is recycling hoarding, there's aesthetic hoarding. And so, you know, I kind of- What's myself, the recycling hoarding? What is the recycling hoarding? Oh, recycling hoarding are people who think that something can have a second life to reuse it. Oh, and aesthetic I might, I might be a little bit like that. Like I'm always like, well, I don't <laughs> want to add it to the landfill and I could probably do something with Oh, that I think paper. a lot of people are like that. Right. You know? Or I could fix that. I could fix that. That just needs a little bit of work. Yeah. And so, you know, and then aesthetic hoarding are people who are really um, compelled to collect things because of the color, the texture, the shape. There's something luring yeah. about it. They're know? real collectors. Yeah. 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 And, uh, but, uh, so anyway, so I, getting back to the organizational stuff. So, so I had been thinking about the relationships to objects in that way. And then I came home and I, and, and I have these candles that are, um, usually aligned on a table and there's about six inches of space between them. And I came home and somebody had pushed them together into groupings of two. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, no, 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 that's wrong, you know, and I separated them back apart. And it was in that action of separating them apart that all of a sudden it dawned on me. It was it wasn't even so much about the objects. It was so much about the space between the objects. And so it all of a sudden just blew up in my head where I started thinking about how um, how we think about things in relation to space. Um, and the space around it and the, the form itself. And so that's sort of- Yes, yes. yes. Well, and that goes back to minimalism too, which you brought up Donald Judd and a half of what that's about is the space around the things. There's the thing, but then there's- Yes, and the constructivists yep. too. The constructivists, I did some research into that as well, because they were saying that there were two elements. I think it was tectonica and factura. And I can't remember which is which, but one was about the, the physical presence of, a, of an object. And the other one was about its relationship to the objects around it. And it was funny because I was working on a painted of a post-it note, just one single post-it note, because this woman had all of these perfectly arranged post-it notes. And I ended up just doing one post-it note with a wide white border. And I was thinking about the Malevich piece, you know, the black square. And so that's how I ended up looking up uh, the constructivist work. But that spatial stuff, then I started thinking about it um, in this in this physical way. And I, it actually ended up I ended up making a whole nother body of work that I call my perfection series that are three-dimensional pieces that are relief. And they, um, mm -hmm. they're sort of recreations of environments that I see where I actually, I, I created these diagrams, you know, Saul LeWitt, the way he has the diagrams for his wall drawings. I've always loved Saul LeWitt and that conceptual side of art. And, but I'm a representational painter. So I was thinking, how can I get, that kind of conceptual rigor into a realist painting, right? And so um, I was going to make just a two-dimensional painting of these, this environment that I saw where there was bo these boxes on the wall and they were just arranged in an interesting way. And I thought, you know what? Wait, well, I'm a painter. Why don't I make a painting of that box and that box and then paint a rectangle on the wall and install them within that rectangle based on the actual measurements of the space that's, you know, the spaces between. So I created these works and in a strange way, um, I, you're familiar with Rachel White's oh, yeah, work. Yeah. I love her she work. She makes work and about so the absence you know, as well of things quite a bit. Correct. Yeah. She's focusing really on what you cannot right. see. Right, and the loss the space of these things, there. the loss of these things. 
Absolutely. Casting, you know, the space under a chair or even a whole building, building yeah. and then removing everything and you're left with the negative space. And I thought about this, these works, uh, these new works in, in relation to that, and almost like I'm doing the opposite. I am sort of trying to reintroduce to you something that you take for granted. So it's almost like sort of representing <laughs> something already in the world. And for example, you know, okay, let's say you have a wall that's 20 feet long, right? And then you, let's say you hang five things up on that mm -hmm. wall, right? You look at that wall, you look at those things and your mind groups them. There's nothing other than mm -hmm. your mind that creates a grouping, right? And so with these works, with those yeah. works, I am the rectangle that's painted on the wall is sort of creating the mental boundaries mm -hmm. that our mind creates that groups things. And so then you paint the rectangle on the wall and then you install all of these objects and create the composition that way. And they're simplified. That's yeah. That is really interesting. So one of the reasons I started making objects and installations rather than paintings yes. this is only one of the reasons was because I couldn't really separate when I put the painting on the wall what was supposed to be part of the artwork and what wasn't. So yeah. things like all of the things that you take for granted, plugs and air conditioning units and all of this stuff around us, which I find fascinating. And I made a bunch of pieces of artwork. Oh, I have to see those. Too, is all of this apparatus around yes. us that's surrounding. And so I started making work that actually addressed the plugs and the, and the air conditioning units and so forth, because because it all becomes part of it does it becomes well um, you know and and you know i maybe because when my kids were little one of the things that i would see when you would give them something that they had never seen before an object the way their face would mm -hmm. light up with with awe and wonder yeah. at this th this right. thing and you know what as you get older right. you you forget that wonder of of the reality you get jaded about things but not apparently if you're a can, can one, is hoarding really the no, polite word? No, the right way to say it is okay. um, uh, a person affected by hoarding disorder or afflicted with or suffering from, because it's it, it doesn't, and I learned that at the conference actually, to not call people hoarders because it's not their whole identity. No, it's not, but they may not feel like they're suffering from it necessarily. There's a No, that's true. Others might too. think, sure. Others, right. I usually so, say affected or affected, affected by, by or, right. you know. So I'm interested that these that you found people who are willing to let you come in to look at their collections and to share the themselves enough to actually have you make artwork about it and refer to them by name. Um, yes. Is it do, do you develop long term relationships and, and is it hard to kind of. Yeah. Um, like, what are you giving to them back? Yes. Um, well, usually uh, when I meet them, I because, you know, you can't just be come up to somebody and say, oh, I hear you, 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 right. you collect stuff, you know, whatever. Right. It's a deeply sensitive um, topic. And a lot of times they don't want to talk about it or even allow people. Absolutely. To and so, it's very personal and it's very, very um, and there's a lot of shame associated with it, you know. Uh -huh. And um, so usually, like at this conference, for example, all the people thought, well, well, like, they would say to me, well, why are you here? And right. I'm like, I'm an artist. Well, why are you here? And I said, well, because I'm making work based on this subject. And, oh, very interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so um, 
at that conference, the woman who had told me about the conference, who was an organizer, um, she pointed to a table and she said, I, I think those are people who are suffering from this disorder. You know, you might want to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, usually people attend because they want to learn about what's going on and how they came to be the way that they are. Right. which makes sense. So I, I sort of edged my way over to the table and there were some breaks in between and I would have coffee and chat with them. And then I usually um, enter it by talking about how I have a strange relationship to things too, you know, mm-hmm. that I am compulsive in the sense that I have to make everything straight and aligned and, you know. And both and, of them are caring about objects. I haven't quite put that together either. But both of them yep. are about caring deeply about objects and how. Yes, are. about things. Absolutely. Right. right. And I think usually when they see that I have this sort of unusual relationship to things as well, they mm-hmm. feel much more comfortable. And sure. and I'm a pretty friendly person. So, you know, um, I'm not, I'm kind of extroverted, so I'm not too shy. And and then they I warm, they warm up to me. And then uh, so at that conference, three people I met said, oh, yes. You know, and I said, well, I make all of this work and I show them the work and I say, I make all of this work based on actual environments. And then I'll say, you know, would you be, you know, open to me coming in and documenting your collection? And they, and then, yeah. 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 But because to them, it's not a hoard to them. It's their collection of things, you know, very important things. Yeah. No, I'm just, it, the fact that they, they believe that, that it takes a certain amount of trust and generosity on their part to do that, that they're not. Going Absolutely. To um, mocked or, yes. or treated as no. having an affliction, for instance. You no. Know? And usually when I'm in their homes photographing, you know, I'll, um, I talk with them and, and, and we're sort of in a weird way. It's kind of an interview. And I'm, and one of the things, so I had never done it like where I went back to back to back like that with somebody mm-hmm. and, with three people. And on my way back from Philadelphia that day, I was in the car and I thought about each person I met and what their stuff was that I saw. Right. So the first woman was kind of quiet and a little bit lonely and introverted. And all of her stuff was like gray or beige or black or brown. Then the second woman was really fun, gregarious. Um, She had purple hair. She drove a bright green Prius and her home was, she was sort of an aesthetic order was I'm telling you, uh, 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 like dazzling. <laughs> a, a dazzling of color. Dazzling. I could point the camera randomly in any direction and have an incredible <laughs> palette. So her house was, a, in, a, in essence, a kind of work of art, its own installation. Yes. And she was a recycling hoarder. Mm-hmm. So she was putting together care packages of all the stuff she collected and she'd mail it to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third person, um, she the whole time I was there, she was telling me about, um, you know, events that she uh, had in her life as a tra- uh, traumatic events as a child mm-hmm. and the dates. And she was so specific about dates and times and yeah. how old she was and the locations and the people. It was very, very specific. And her home was filled with files and papers and like it, it, archiving it almost, everything. It was almost like evidence of everything that had mm-hmm. happened. And yeah. I was fascinated by that. And, I, and that, so on the way back, I thought, oh, my gosh, their physical forms around them are actually like physical representations of their psyche. Like it was a complete extension of their personalities. So interesting. So do you think by extension, we can say that all of us, our houses or how we surround ourselves are, in essence, a model of our mind? Uh, I, absolutely. And I think, you know, these people just can't <laughs> filter it. 
Like we have, yeah. we have a, yeah. a valve that we can turn off. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that they just can't turn that valve off. And so it's an extreme case of it. But William James right. talks about that too. And he says, um, he says, oh, I can, I can tell you the quote right now. Hold on one sec. Okay. I have it right here. So while you're doing that, I'm just going to say I'm Martha Willett Lewis. I'm the host of Live Culture, and I'm in discussion this month with, with, uh, with Richard Pascarelli, who has an exhibit, The Matter at Hand, which is up now at the Jennifer Turksian Gallery in Litchfield, Connecticut. And you were listening to WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. So Richard, this is fascinating. So do you have your William James I do have the quote. So let me read it. It's just an excerpt, but it says, in its wildest possible sense, however, a man's self is the sum total of all that he can call his, not only his body and his psychic powers, but his clothes and his house, his wife and children, his ancestors and friends, his reputation and works, his lands and horses and yacht and bank account. All these things give him the same emotions. If they wax and prosper, he feels triumphant. If they dwindle and die away, he feels cast down, not necessarily in the same degree for each. And I totally agree with that. Do you? Absolutely. I think that the uh, Shakers and the Quakers felt the same way. All of There's all kinds of mm-hmm. religious groups that are, you mentioned Buddhism, but also oh, yeah. Shakers and Quakers that are against sort of attachment to things. Yes, um, I think that the, the for the mortal coil is not the yeah yeah are you are you familiar with Buddhism and and all of that yeah oh okay yes. but, but, yeah so this idea of attachments I think that's a very fascinating thing about how we create our sense of self through the things that we attach not only right. physical objects but belief systems and ideologies and all of mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. and right. the way I love what I love about Buddhism is this idea that. If you can remove all of those things, those judgments, those attachments, you know, even down to the smallest things like I like salt, I don't like salt. But if you can get rid of all of those tiny little things, what you're left with is the beingness, right? And Mm -hmm. that, that beingness that you have and that I have is exactly the same thing. And there's this oneness and that 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 beingness beingness becomes separate by all of these attachments. And I think there's a lot to be said for that philosophy. There is a lot to be said for that philosophy. It's an interesting approach to have as an artist who's a maker of things. You're constantly producing more things. Yeah. You're, you get attached to materials and to color and to Absolutely. objects. And, and your your step, your process is quite precise and involves taking photographs and then yeah. you know, producing them very painstakingly. Yes. And so you're you're not getting rid of that thingness very uh, easily. <laughs> no. And I <laughs> wrestle with that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know? yeah. So the other thing that I think about is the way that this, this all relates to capitalism and the way that people get attached to brands. Right? Oh yes. Well, uh, advertising right? they is... identify with brands mm-hmm. and wearing a status brand is, yes. is marking yourself. And it's a kind of costume too. So other people can read you. Absolutely. And you know what? I also worked in advertising for 20 years Mm -hmm. as an art director and, you know, and, and maybe that informs my work to a degree as well, but this, um, you know, there you're trying to create desire, you know, um, you want people to desire your thing and, and, you know, and, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, um, an interesting thing because, we're always talking about sustainability in the environment. And I think that, 
you know, a big part of this um, also has to be our consumption, you know, and it's hard. <clears throat> a lot of times I'll try to start back part of the conversation about the things that we collect and the things that we want and all of this and sustainability. And a lot of people don't really want to hear that. They want to talk about no. the environment and what's good for the environment, but they don't want to talk about that part of it. No, I know. Well, if you mention, you know, giving up something like Amazon Prime, um, <laughs> people they get very, very defensive about it. Yes. You know, they, they may not like the politics of how people are being treated in the workplace. Yes. They may not like the the um, environmental footprint of it, but for some reason they can't. Yes. It's the, way, it's the finding not, another way around it. It's and the not in my backyard. It's kind of yeah. like that not in my backyard kind of a thing idea, you know? Yeah. So tell me about the exhibit a little bit. Uh, where in Litchfield is it and how long is it up for? Okay, and yeah. So the website? The show is, yeah, the show is up until um, April 2nd. Um, mm -hmm. I think Jenny, uh, Jennifer, who owns the gallery, is be, has been doing flexible hours and um, by appointment. So people should look um, on the website. You should definitely look on her website, which is Jenny, jenniferterzingallery.com. And, and Terzian is T-E-R-Z-I-A-N. Correct. That's right. And Terzian Gallery. Mm -hmm. And she's in downtown. And it's free and open right to the Litchfield. public. Yeah, it's open to the mm -hmm. public. Um, the space is on uh, South Street. And there's, uh, you know how in some of the older towns, um, you have steps that go down to spaces that are underneath the storefronts. It's in one of those spaces yeah. there under the, uh, and a restaurant called at the corner. Um, it's a wonderful. lovely little space. Um, Jennifer is wonderful. And um, uh, she used to work for a gallery in LA. Uh, I think it was called Mark Selwyn Gallery. And she's wonderful. And she's been curating and doing um, things all over Connecticut. She did a, a, a wonderful show um, <clears throat> a couple of years ago at the Mattituck Museum in- uh, Terrific, in yeah. Mary, have I you like been the there? Yes, yes, I have. It's a so lovely museum. Connecticut right now, we've been benefiting a lot from the, the kind of exodus of gallery dealers from New York. Yeah. And there are better and better small galleries scattered throughout Connecticut. So I, I would encourage the community to go out and, and explore yes. a little bit. There more contemporary work. There. And they are all free and open to the public. Yes. So. And more contemporary works are coming right. uh, more in, into the country. Well, Litchfield, I consider sort of the country, um, which is, is interesting. And you were a part-time Connecticut person yourself. You yeah. Some time here. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, so back great. in 2008, when, when the kids were little, um, we felt, you know, we were raising them in the city and we felt like they really needed some green, um, green animals and trees and things. Green animals. <laughs> we bought an old house, um, a really small little farmhouse built in 1740 that needed, was in mm -hmm. desperate uh, need of repair and, um, We've been fixing it up slowly ever since, and we love. I love it, Litchfield. And then during, of course, the pandemic, right. just having that nice. place was uh, phenomenal. Being able, it's to really a blessing, isn't it? Well, Richard Pasquarelli, I want to thank you so much for being on Live Culture with me, Martha. And thank I you. I've really enjoyed this. This was so much fun. Yeah, and I love the title, "The Matter at Hand," and the matter at hand is up at Jennifer Turstian Gallery in Litchfield until. April. Yes. Oh, and then I have another show opening in Manhattan on April, oh, good. Okay. On April 14th. And that Terrific. is that show is called As It Should Be. And that's focusing um, 
predominantly on the Perfection and Order works, and that's at Bravenly Programs. Oh, that is a really great, Bravenly Programs does really wonderful stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, they're lovely yeah, people really. as well. Congratulations. I'm honored to be showing with them. So, yeah. I'm also going to be doing a uh, lecture titled The Order of Things at the Oliver Wolcott Library in Litchfield, Connecticut. And that's going to be on March 31st at 7 p.m. And it's a live event as well as a virtual event. And you can, there's a link to register um, on the Oliver Wolcott Library website under events. And the Oliver Wolcott Library is where exactly? That's in downtown Litchfield on South Street. Wonderful. And people can presumably look on the website and find out more about that. Is it free and open to the public? I believe so. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Martha. You're listening to Live Culture. I'm Martha Willett-Lewis. That was an interview with artist Richard Pascarelli. To find out more about Richard's work, you can visit www.richardpascarelli.com. And I'm going to take a short break. And when I come back, I'm going to have music promoter Fernando Pinto with me, who is celebrating 40 years of bringing us beautiful music in the Connecticut area. And the band APB is going to be coming up soon at Toad's Place. So I'm going to take play a track uh, from them while I get Fernando on the line. So stay tuned. Culture. I'm delighted to have Fernando Pinto with me on the air. Fernando, can you hear me? I can hear you very well, Martha. Wonderful. I'm going to turn you up a little bit. Um, so that was a little bit from APB, who are a post-punk Scottish band that you have coming really soon, right? Yeah, they are playing at Cafe Nine next Wednesday. And you have a whole lineup for the spring and summer, but you're celebrating 40 years, 40 years in New Haven of... Promoting concerts. Is that right? It, very true. Unbelievable, isn't it? You yes. know, 40 years. 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we have a nice party set for Wednesday night at Cafe 9 in New Haven. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, APB, which is the band that I brought back, brought to Naugatuck, Connecticut, 35 years ago to my first club, The Night Shift. Wow. They will, they will be playing. And um, we just had a cancellation on a local band. Uh, the problem with kids today, uh, mm -hmm. because their their drummer is stuck in Korea. Oh, with with COVID, so they oh, had no. to cancel. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, that just happened a few days ago, and uh, we replaced them with uh, another local band, Vertigo. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we have DJs as well. Um, one of the DJs is Maris uh, Dorsey, which uh, she was really involved with the local music scene back in the 80s mm-hmm. with a radio station out of um, West Haven, WNHU. Oh, yeah. 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 So um, it's going to be fun. That sounds great. That sounds great. So tell me a little bit about your 40 years of music promoting. How did you start doing it? Who have you who have you brought to Connecticut? Tell me tell me some stories. Uh, absolutely. Well, many bands, sometimes people come up to me and he goes, you know, um, that was a really good show that you promoted with a, a therapy or whatever band it was. And I said, you know, I, I look at them like with this, did I bring that band? Right. I brought so many bands to Connecticut that some of them, you know, um, because I was busy uh, running a bar, you know, it, it, I didn't catch every show as I should. Like mm-hmm. now it's much easier for me to really listen to music, to uh, go see bands. Back when I was running clubs, it was just like with so much work involved to do everything that I, you it's know. Too many, too many, too much, too much at once. Too, too much destruction. Yeah. Absolutely. But um, we had too many, we had lots of great shows, you know, in the last 40 years, you know, I, I seem like I promoted shows at every um, little hole in the wall that there was in Connecticut, you know, started in Naugatuck back in 82. Uh, we opened up a discotheque called uh, Toga Beach too. I was the DJ spinning what was called then alternative music. Mm-hmm. Then, then this partnership with two friends dissolved, bought them out, and I turned the Toga Beach Stew into night shift and built built a stage in the corner. Was only two lights over the stage, <laughs> you know. Um, I didn't have much money. I was like no, twenty two years dirty, old, right? Down and dirty. Yeah, do it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what I've been involved all my life, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so. Um, you know, I start bringing blues, Chicago blues artists, and um, and really alter- alternative bands like uh, you know Flaming Lips, Sonic mm-hmm. Youth. Um, amazing. Co- yeah, amazing. Um, it, it was amazing. It was incredible. Like all, you know, I look back. You know, some of the artists that I have presented in many times was no more than thirty people there. You mm-hmm. know, now it's just like so many live music venues, which is great. But back in the day, it was only a group of people. You knew exactly who they were because everybody was listening to Hazi or Led Zeppelin, you know? Mm-hmm. So t- what was the band that became the biggest that had the smallest audience that, you, that you've, you've brought somewhere? I've been, in, I've been with friends bands where they've had, you know, like one or two people in the audience and they've had to play. <laughs> um, well, well, Flaming Lips was mm-hmm. one of the bands, probably 1987, uh-huh. Night Shift in Naugatuck. And there was were about four people there? <laughs> was a, basically me, the bartender, and the sound man, and a couple of radio um, mm-hmm. DJs, yeah. you know? Um, and it was a great show, and I they're pretty, pretty well known today. Um, oh, I love them. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, Nirvana at the Moon is a mm-hmm. documentary to uh, about to be uh, released. 
And the people that are doing the documentary, they told me that probably was the best show. They've been re- doing research on Nirvana, like mm-hmm. that tour, and before that Nevermind one. came out. And the one at the moon, they say, and probably was the best, their best live performance wow. of that old tour. You know, so um, and how many I know people that does w- the moon hold? It was about 170 people there. Mm-hmm. This was three days before Nevermind was released. Right. And did you you brought Nirvana there? So how did you find how do you find your bands? Well, it, you know, when you're part of a scene, you know, it's like what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, people know that you are doing certain things, and uh, you know, okay, well, Martha is the person that I should call to do this specific thing. You mm-hmm. know, back then it was me and Toads, right? And then it was like the big halls, but. You know, a lot of band, not every band wanted to play Toads because I always had venues that had a, a strong street credibility, you yep. know, like yep. uh, bands wanted to make money. But if they want to really get uh, a well, um, strong audience, obviously is the people that makes things happen, which is the underground, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I happen to love Cafe Nine, which is uh, located at 250 State Street. It's a nice, small venue. You can get really close to the stage. The sound system is really good. It's just a lovely environment. It's a nice environment. Lovely is probably the right word, but it's a really nice environment. It's an awesome venue, you know, um, and it's because I've been small, big, you Mm -hmm. know, I prefer to do shows in small places like that, you know, Cafe Nine. Yeah. Every night of the week, you can see a great show there, you know, like uh, it's like seeing a a show in your living room, basically. Yeah. So, you know, I've basically stopped going to big shows every now and then I'll go see something. And College Street Music Hall is about as big as it's going to get. But I definitely want to be, you know, right there up front. And I want to feel like there's some sort of uh, interaction with the, the artist. Um, absolutely. It's a, it's a energy dancing there when you with yeah. a, in a small place. Absolutely. So for a while you were, you've been really creative about where you program things. And I've seen some incredible shows for a while. You were programming at a place called Mactivity, which really did feel like one's living room. It was sort of the living room in front of a, a gym, um, a membership gym. And it had a very nice environment with couches and plants and things. And you had people like Rory Block and Roy Bookbinder and really great kind of blues acts, mostly. Um, I was very sorry when that, that stopped being a thing because I thought that was a really tr- uh, terrific addition to to the New Haven music scene. Um, so for, for this, you're going to be pretty much concentrating on Cafe Nine? Well, you know, I like to get a venue that would replace what I was doing at Mactivity because yeah. Mactivity was special for the reason that even though it was a gym, you didn't you, you didn't feel like you was in a gym. No, right? not at all. I and, felt like I was in a very nice living room. Yeah, and once people got in and paid to get in, you know, they would go to their chair and they would turn their phones off. So it was a mm-hmm. totally different vibe, yeah. like, People came there. It was almost like coming to church. You know, now it's time to sit and mm-hmm. really tune in to what's going on. And to be and, together uh, doing it. Absolutely. It's sometimes in the bar, is always someone that is, you know, having a beer and forgets that, you know, it's something really special <laughs> happening on stage, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, East, Rock, East Rock Concert Series, I have, you know, like 
April 3rd, I have the uh, guitarist for um, Caroline Chocolate Drop. Oh, yeah, Bobby, Bobby Jenkins. Jenkins. Yeah, I'm excited yeah. about that one. And you've got Washboard Slim and the Blue Lights as well, yeah. which is pretty good. Connecticut great. Legend, Legendary yeah. Band, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, and what else? And, uh, well, uh, I have Red Elvis, which uh, we haven't been talking much about them because of the situation in the world today. Mm-hmm. They they are from Siberia. Okay. Uh, but I'm thinking about dropping the Siberia, even that the incredible band, and they totally against Russia for what they do. I think you should. Um, I think you should reconsider that. I think it's really problematic for everybody to. I mean, so many Russians are not for what's happening. Sure. Um, Absolutely. And and they 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 deserve to. I mean, they're they're suffering too, right? What's going on right now is really horrible for lots of Russians, including people who are in the army who had no idea what was going to happen to them. Um, I don't know. Consider that. Consider it because I don't think it's necessarily. I mean, I don't know what the band's politics are. But a lot of Russians are strongly against this, and it, 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 they are. I, I have talked to them, and uh, you know, they they not well. He he grew up in uh, I think uh, another European country. The singer, mm-hmm. which has been pretty much the guy that's been carrying the band for the last thirty years. Yeah, um, and he lived in Russia for a while. But, uh, you know, he doesn't consider himself Russian. He's been no. here for most of his time. But the music is like basically surf punk. Okay. Fun, you know, like nice. they play in April 10th. Um, so that that will be a good show. And I have um, a blues artist, uh, you know, uh, that was be- um, Carrie Bell's Bell? son. Yeah. Laurie Bell. Yeah. Carrie Bell's son. I just saw him at the uh, Kate in uh in Old Say Brook, and I was like amazed because this this man lives in an uh, assistant home, you know, because of his health, and it was incredible to see him on stage. That 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 showed me the powerful the power of music when you really delve in the things that we really connect with it spiritually. Yeah. you know, it can reanimate you. Absolutely, I went to the I went up front you know, to shake his hand. And I looked at his face and he's just like glowing, you know, like I was looking at Jesus. So he's coming in in June. And what kind of of music is it? It's like Chicago blues, but he's he's more like on a progressive side of guitar playing. Nice. You know, nice. That should be a good evening. And you've got the all night boogie band with him. Yeah. uh, The all night boogie band is uh, my friend, uh, Marty Casey's uh, kids. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they based in um, they from Fairfield, but they go into college in uh, Burlington, Vermont. And um, they basically a blues funk band and they're really good. Great, you know, and, great. And, and Marty was a musician himself back in the 80s. They used to play in my first club. You know, it's nice now to see like the second generation. Mm-hmm. And, and me personally, I like to promote that. You know what I mean? I, I, think it's great. I promote it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. one of the things that I've noticed about Cafe Nine, and I think this is really weird because I grew up thinking, you know, when I was in college, we all went to clubs and to hear bands and to hear live music all the time. And I had lots of friends who were in bands. And um, when I go to Cafe Nine, the the audience generally seems older, more of my generation, and there's fewer college students there. So I think anything that gets, I think playing younger bands and giving them a chance is really fantastic. It's important. 
I, I like to do that. You know, I always did, actually. You know, I would bring a national act and I would look for local um, bands mm-hmm. to put on support. And sometimes they just like they've been playing in their garage for like a month or two. But I think it's necessary to really provide that stage. Mm-hmm. And the the 90s, you know, is, is a lot of Connecticut musicians. They used to play at my first and uh, my last club to tune in that are doing great have great careers today in the music business that started as a tune-in, you know? So, um, where yeah, was the, where was like the tune-in? The tune-in was not far from Cafe 9. It was right on Santa Street, and I was there for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. I remember the tune-in. And yeah. um, you have an all-metal tribute to the Bee Gees, and that's happening, happening somewhere else, right? That's not at Cafe 9. Uh, no. Well... They play the cafe name, mm-hmm. but they bring a lot of confetti, you know, mm-hmm. and their their live shows <laughs> are messy pretty happy. for cafe nine. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Paul didn't like the mess that they made, so yeah. uh, that's why we have. But but they actually very they already too big to play a venue that is about hundred people capacity. Yeah. So you know, where but they be playing. They're playing at the cellar or somewhere. Uh, uh, they play in the cellar uh, in Amden. Um, okay. Yeah, and I think it's uh, July 10 or 12 that they are playing there. Right. People who are interested can go on to www.fernandopintopresents.com, and there's a calendar of events, and there's ways of obtaining tickets and so forth for that. Yeah, um, yeah and if they scroll all the way down to the bottom, I don't just promote uh, acts. I like to bring artists to town like, my taste for for music is from A to Z. I don't stick to one genre in specific. No, but you don't. Um, it, it, I bring all kinds of music. But now, the last three years, I've been doing something that I'm really having fun with it. Right, uh, which is booking um, as a booking agent for uh, Linda Gale Lewis, mm-hmm. Jerry Lee Lewis' uh, sister. Uh huh. Fantastic. Um, Billy Bremner from uh, Rock Pile wow. and also okay. the guitarist in um, The Pretenders for many hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Augie Myers from the Texas Tornadoes and uh, Sir Douglas Quinte. Uh, and uh, at the beginning, I was hesitant to do work with these people because, you know, I always been promoting original music mm-hmm. and a tribute, you know, a Johnny Cash tribute approached me and he said, look, I was talking to Linda Gale and she mentioned that you did an awesome job for her last August, and I'm looking for a book in Asian. And I said, uh-uh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I want to bo- you know, book right, a tribute. Right. And the more I talked to JC, the leader, the more I liked the guy. And I said, well, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan. Yeah. And this guy, Beautiful if music. you close your eyes, he sounds like Johnny Cash, and he looks like Johnny Cash. So I started working with him about a year ago, and, and mm-hmm. things are working great. And then... Another uh, tribute came into the picture, which is J- uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins. Yeah. With the original guitar of Screaming Jay Hawkins, the, the name of this tribute is Resurrection of Screaming Jay Hawkins. So I start working with them. So I, I, I mix between two tributes and three incredible original Interesting. artists. Interesting. Yeah. So you have a small sort of stable of artists that are your own artists at this point. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm loving what I do, and they keep me busy. You know, good, good. I, you know, 
there's nothing like loving what you do and keeping busy. And it's been keeping you busy for 40 years, which I think is pretty great. I know that you went on a big adventure during the beginning of lockdown where you were traveling all over the place. Were you listening to music as well? Yeah, I was actually listening to every uh, some areas that you go, you know, we we cross the East Coast to the Northwest and back down mm-hmm. Texas Great. through the South and back. And obviously some some areas you go through it and the radio is kind of sad. All right. Yes, so I would it go, is so I would, sad in some places. <laughs> it really and, is. It's horrible. <laughs> And and honestly, once I I turn it, all I need is two seconds. Uh uh-uh. uh, mm-hmm. next, right? <laughs> so I I did a lot of listening to uh, Willie's Roadhouse. Mm-hmm. Okay, which you know was great to be out there in the middle of America yeah. and really listen to country music. I, I was having a blast actually. That does sound great. That does sound yeah. great. Fernando Pino, I want to thank you so much for being on Live Culture today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and forty years is quite an accomplishment. Um, so you're going to be celebrating that at Cafe Nine on the thirtieth of March, I believe. Yeah, this coming Wednesday, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I appreciate you having me on your show. You it, know, this it, is great, Martha. It's an absolute delight to talk to you. Bye-bye. Listen, I'll see you next Wednesday, and thank you. Yeah, and you I hope will. everybody comes I'm gonna down. Be there. I'm going to be there. Bye-bye. Awesome. Yeah, have a good day. Cheers. So this has been Live Culture with Martha Willett-Lewis on WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. This is a once-a-month show about arts and culture, and I will be back the final Saturday of next month from 11 to 12. And up next, we're going to have Spotlight on Arts and Culture with David Green, and it's going to be an interview with... Uh, Bridgeport artist Liz Squalachi, who is a force of nature, and that should just be really, really interesting. So stay tuned for more arts and culture radio from WPKN, the radio station that cares about the arts in all of its manifestations, visual, oral, everything. Um, And I'm going to close out with Shoot You Down, a song from APB who will be the headlining at Cafe 9 for Fernando Pinto's uh, celebration coming back to the clubs. And that will be 30th of March, Cafe 9. If you go to www.fernandopintopresents.com, you can find out more information about all of that. And let's see. Here we go. So I want to say thank you very much for listening and bye-bye. Living off an end, off a color line. 
Support for WPKN comes from the Westport Library hosting VersaFest, an immersive music and media festival running from Friday, April the 8th through Sunday the 10th. With performances that educate, entertain and inspire, panels where experts share their perspective and vision, and small workshops where creators can deconstruct and hone their craft, VersaFest will provide creatives, artists and fans the opportunity to explore music and media in an intimate environment. More information and registration is available at westportlibrary.org. All the news that's fit to print... And Democracy Dies in Darkness, two taglines of two major American news organizations, the New York Times and the Washington Post. WPKN is proud to offer digital subscriptions to both publications. Become a monthly sustaining supporter at $15 per month and you can have your pick of either paper for a one-year subscription. So if you already have the New York Times at home, consider adding the Washington Post. In the process, you're helping support WPKN, nonprofit community radio. Make your sustaining donation to WPKN today, online at WPKN.org. It will be a decision you will enjoy every single day of the year. Is trading in your car more hassle than it's worth? Then choose a real alternative. Donating your car to WPKN. Avoid the Blue Book Blues and the dealer drama and contribute to the diverse universe that is your WPKN. You'll get a sweet tax deduction and will feel that WPKN pride while you're out in your new ride. Donating is easy. Call 877-WPKN-CAR. 877-WPKN-CAR. Or go straight to our website, WPKN.org, and follow the step-by-step instructions. Finding a place to live should be an exciting time. It is a fair expectation that if an apartment is available, you would have an opportunity to get it. You should not be discriminated against because of race, color, national origin, age, or other reasons. Housing discrimination is against the law. If you think you've been discriminated against, Bridgeport Neighborhoods Together offers free counseling services at 203-290-4255. That's 203-290-4255 or bntweb.org on the internet. For many people, gambling can be a social activity. For others, gambling can cause problems. For some, gambling can become uncontrollable. If you don't know when it's time to quit, then it's time to call for help. Free, confidential help is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 1-888-789-7777. That's 1-888-789-7777. Are you an adult with an ongoing health condition such as arthritis, high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, or depression? Consider a Live Well Workshop. The Live Well Workshops provide techniques to deal with stress, pain, and fatigue, nutrition and exercise options, effective ways to talk to others about your health, a step-by-step plan to improve your health and your life. There is no cost to attend. 
Live Well workshops meet once a week for six weeks. Caregivers are welcome. For more information on the Live Well programs or to find a workshop near you, please visit www.cthealthyliving.org or call 203-814-3693. Live Well is sponsored by the Southwestern Connecticut Agency on Aging, the State Department on Aging, and the State Department of Public Health. As we face a world in crisis, WPKN is changing its schedule to bring you more thorough and timely news and public affairs programming. Beginning on Monday, March 28th, Democracy Now! will air from 7 to 8 p.m., Monday through Friday. On Tuesdays through Fridays, our regularly scheduled public affairs programming will follow at 8 p.m. At 6 a.m., Tuesdays through Fridays, you can hear The Briefing from the UK's Monocle News Service. And at 6 a.m. on Monday, you can still hear Alternative Radio. In the evening, Counterpoint will begin at 8 p.m., followed by Counterspin at 9.30 p.m. WPKN Bridgeport, 89.5 FM and WPKN.org.